If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. If you will turn with me to the second book of the Bible, I'll be reading from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave, or ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Here ends the reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. By the mysteries of the lectionary cycle, preachers are given the option to preach on the Ten Commandments this morning, and I'm sure many will. They are, after all, the Big Ten, the most famous Decalogue in the Western world, And lately, they have been a pawn in the culture wars, especially through efforts to place monuments to them on government property, which violates the separation of church and state. Like so many other debates raging in this society, there is more heat than light. The Ten Commandments are at the top of the list of the most revered but misunderstood biblical teachings beginning with the claim that this list forms the basis for the legal system in the West. 
or that posting them in more places, especially in schools, would just help turn this country around. They are not called the Ten Suggestions after all. So let's look at them one more time to see what we might have missed. What are they really and where did they come from? First of all, in the most general way, the commandments are a list of religious edicts attributed to Moses following his encounter with God up on Mount Sinai. The first four are designed to guide the believer toward a proper relationship with God. The remaining six deal with our relationship with other people. Those final six are negative in form. You shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, covet your neighbor's stuff. But for the record, only two of the commandments are actually incorporated into our legal code, the prohibitions against stealing and murder. Also, you probably know that Protestants, Catholics, and Jews have all compiled slightly different lists. Although the core demands are the same, and while Muslims do not list the commandments in the Quran per se, they do honor Moses as a prophet. So let's begin with a positive word. The Ten Commandments are one of the earliest attempts to lay down rules and guidelines to sustain community. And they go to the heart of the ways in which people who violate those rules unravel the world, create alienation, discord, and violence. The ideas behind them matter, even though they are often misunderstood as products of a particular and in some ways a primitive culture. We break these rules all the time, of course, even the people who go to weep and pray over the monuments to the Ten Commandments on the courthouse lawn do so not realizing that their insistence on a particular religious shrine is itself a form of idolatry, which violates the first commandment against idolatry. And of course, when we insist that only this list contains all that should be known and followed, we ignore the ways in which so many other religious traditions have their own lists and have been sustained by them. Consider the eightfold path of Buddhism known as the wheel of the law. It forbids murder, unchastity, theft, falsehood, and especially covetous desire. What is important to remember is not that we argue over whose list is the right list, but rather that we acknowledge that all the lists have this in common. They guide us toward relationships built on trust rather than on fear. Because only through trust can there be love. When trust is lost, relationships are lost. This then is the true consequence of violating the commandments. It diminishes the possibility of love, which diminishes the possibility of life. This much we know. As an observant Jew, Jesus of Nazareth was raised on the commandments. Quote, if you would enter life, he said to the rich young ruler who had too much love for too much stuff, Keep the commandments. It's interesting to read what the rich young ruler said next. Which ones? Perhaps we would all like to pick and choose according to our circumstances and desires. So let's begin at the beginning. You shall have no other gods before me. It is no accident that the commandment against idolatry in all its forms should be at the top of the list. For in reality, all our sickness, 
flows from displacement, from the illusion that to serve myself, I will worship something other than God. Think of all the golden calves in our culture, money at the top of the list, of course, then some form of fame, even if it's infamy, and of course, the symphony of illusions that play inside our heads that make us believe we will never die, that we are a really, really big deal, that the world owes us something, and that we are somehow exempt from life's pain and suffering. Idols promise us power and invincibility God does not. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a graven image, a graven image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. We're going to get the three stories of the universe covered here. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. This includes, I am afraid to say, the iPhone 10. <laughs> for some of us, it includes the Grateful Dead. For others, Beyonce. For others, the new Tesla Model 3, which I am breathlessly awaiting. <laughs> the best dressed at the Oscars, stock options, even, I'm sorry to say, raw silk pajamas. I know, come on preacher, leave us with something. <laughs> Idols are seductive precisely because they are here, visible, tangible, not like this mystery we call God. I mean, just how much emptiness and invisibility does God expect us to run on before we need something tangible that we can hold like a caramel brulee frappuccino? The warning here is that idols never deliver anything that lasts. When they are done with us, they discard us like the new car smell or when we ignore the message in our mirror that very soon all of us will not be young anymore and that if we insist on continuing to take food and water, we will still get old and die. As one idol after another turns hollow, our souls get hollow, yellow, and brittle like old newspapers when the headlines no longer matter. Idols promise what they cannot deliver. And so Moses says, don't put them on the top shelf. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, growing up, I was taught that this meant not to use profanity, don't swear. But when the commandments were written, a civil contract was sworn in the name of the Lord to make it binding. If broken, the offending party would be guilty of taking the Lord's name in vain. Now, since we don't make legal arrangements this way anymore. This commandment has lost much of its original meaning, except when someone curses on the golf course in the presence of a minister. <laughs> or when the minister curses and someone quotes to the reverend the third commandment. Number four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, especially for shopping, sleeping in, and watching the Super Bowl. You know, there was a time when taking a single day off was considered to be not lazy, but really good for you, a sort of sacred responsibility. Six days we work, but then we rest for one day so we can think about why we worked six days in the first place. 
Instead of rushing around one more day, we pause to remember that work is a means to an end, not an end unto itself. The commandment to keep the Sabbath was obviously very important. Commentary on it takes up a third of the total text of the Ten Commandments section. It is the only item in the list that is referred to as holy, but only the Seventh-day Adventists followed this commandment strictly. Now, of course, there's renewed interest in the idea of Sabbath because, well, look at us. We don't know when to stop. Just try no cell phone for one day, I dare you. Or no screens. Have a screen-free, cell phone-free day, all day, and that's when you'll know how much we need a Sabbath. Our restless lives cry out for peace. We go and go and go in order to get, and then we wake up one day to realize that there's no more time to enjoy all we've gotten so that in the truest sense, we have nothing. One day to rest, to read, to talk to one another, to walk, to watch the sky, to pet the dog, to take a nap and listen to the wind outside your window. Number five, honor your father and your mother. I like this one. There is nothing like being a parent to make you understand why this honor is due. Not because parents don't fail, sometimes miserably, but because human beings who raise other human beings are engaged in the most difficult, the most exhausting, and the most frightening occupation on earth. We are not to make idols of our parents, of course, but we are commanded to honor them. We must separate from them, of course, and live as adults and find our own way. And sometimes parents must be forgiven, but this too is a way to honor them. When they are gone, you are conscious of the void that is left in the universe. The commandment does not say to fear them or try to duplicate them or even allow them to control your fate. It just says honor is due. Honor your mother and your father. Number six, you shall not kill. Oh my, the ways in which we have found exceptions to this commandment. You shall not kill, or as it is now translated in the New Revised Standard Version, you shall not murder, a difference that is real, but has also led to many tortured rationalizations of the true intent of the commandment. We can all imagine situations in which we would kill and do kill, but in finding them and stressing them, we ignore the pure, distilled simplicity of this commandment. Do not take life from another. It is the basis of all ethics. It is not yours to take. Yours is not for anyone else to take. We did not make ourselves. We should never unmake another. This is the baseline commandment that builds a wall between the violence we would do to one another and the life force that's at the heart of the mystery of God. You shall not kill. Even soldiers who are trained to kill find it impossible to fully detach themselves from the inhumanity of what they've been asked to do. 
New York Times war correspondent Chris Hedges tells a story of soldiers who go through, after they have killed someone, the personal effects of the enemy dead. And there they find photographs of mothers, fathers, wives, children, and lovers. And try, as the military machine must try, to dehumanize them so they can be killed. These soldiers realize they have indeed killed another human being whose dreams and aspirations are identical to theirs. Few things are more important for the church these days than for it to stop participating in the lies that make war glamorous and profitable. If the church cannot recover its essential commitment to pacifism, its simple and basic aversion to violence in all forms, then we have lost our soul. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. It'll get suddenly uncomfortable in here. Once again, what is lost is not just the integrity of intimacy, but trust. The breaking of promises undoes the world. There are few moments more tender and more hopeful than the taking of, of vows, and fewer things more destructive than breaking them. And the world is littered with the incalculable damage of broken promises in marriage. It breaks children, it destroys friendships, it undoes the world. And this commandment is not naive and Victorian. Surely its author knows how often human beings go in search of something new, something ideal. And in so doing, we put at risk everything we value, but at least we are warned. It might be impossible to understand how broken in Western culture is the relationship between body and soul, and how destructive is our way of peddling everything in this culture by appealing to our right to find pleasure and to consume others as we would any other product. If there were a way to calculate the damage done to families, to the social contract, to innocence, to love itself by the breaking of promises in a relationship, that number would not just be exponential, it would be incalculable. Every good thing in life is made possible through covenant. So we should keep our covenant promises, period. Number eight, you shall not steal. Unless, of course, you can get away with it. Many, many people do get away with it, that is. Their, their theft is cloaked in ambition. It's not like they break into houses and stuff stuff into a sack. Rather, they find ways to acquire what other people have by being dishonest with them, by shoving long pieces of paper at them with too much fine print to read and too little time to discuss the interest rate that will really be charged with hidden fees that are attached the ways in which short-term gain is swallowed up by the despair of long-term guilt. Do not take what is not yours by dishonest means. This is pretty clear. The world is full of deceit, driven by the desire to get something for nothing. Beware. To steal is also an act of deception that depends on secrecy. It exploits, it exploits weakness, vulnerability, access. You might get away with it, 
except that in reality, you would know that you did it, so you would be stealing from yourself. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie. Why not? Because lying undoes the world. Like the boy who cried wolf, which just happens to be the most common fable in the world, appearing in some form in more cultures than any other didactic moral story. Why? Because lying destroys credibility until you become literally unbelievable. The Greeks thought that when you could no longer be trusted and believed, you might as well be dead. We study these things in a class I teach at OCU called Ethics of Communication. And when the students ask me, so hey, prof, what's this course about? I say mostly about lying. And they get a really funny look on their face and I say, so you're all experts already. You may not need to take the class. And I ask them for a show of hands the first day, how many of you have never told a lie? Never has a single hand gone up. After the semester's over and we've studied lying in its myriad guises, the students all agree, sometimes in silence, on one thing. Like the boy who cried wolf, lying undoes trust. And trust undoes relationships. And relationships are what make life worthwhile and make us happy. What's more, when trust is gone because of lies discovered, Nobody knows how to restore it. There's no pill you can take, restoration of trust pill, take two of these, call me in the morning. It doesn't exist. No minister, no shaman, no, no guru, no politician, no magistrate has a formula by which trust can be restored once it has been lost. Sometimes it is never restored. And so neither is the relationship. Telling the truth is difficult sometimes, but always better than the alternative. And we all lie for two reasons, of course. One, to avoid punishment, and two, to get something we want. But in the end, cynicism, apathy, and despair are the consequences. Look at our political system. It's death by lying. We wouldn't recognize the truth now if someone told it to us. And so we give up on everyone and on everything, and then we mutter perhaps the greatest modern political obscenity of all, I never vote. They're all the same. None of us can be trusted, including you. You can't even be trusted to vote. Again, this commandment asks that you do not deceive that you not acquire anything of benefit to yourself by lying, either in a trial or in everyday life, or by taking advantage of other people. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth has its roots in this idea? Do not manipulate the world to your advantage by speaking falsely. Number 10, finally, the most American commandment of all. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or his wife or any of the other things he owns and how sad that the wife is listed among the possessions. But this was a patriarchal society as are most societies to this day. But what this commandment really says is that greed is the destroyer of worlds. We want 
what we don't have because we think that when we get it, we will be happy or we will be famous or we will be admired by our friends and respected by our enemies. In order to sell things to one another, we've created in America the most elaborate, the most fantastic, and often the most deplorable culture of greed on earth. It drives people to do desperate things, to turn against those they love, to cheat their own friends, to take enormous risks, all so they might have what someone else has or more than they have. I, I don't know if any of you have seen this commercial on television lately, but it's about your brother-in-law. He's in a sweater and it starts off, your brother-in-law, you like him, he smells good all the time. Your mother thinks he's done really well. Your father wants to go fishing with him and your father doesn't even fish. You know the one I'm talking about? You like your brother-in-law, but you would like him a lot more if you made more money than he does. It's for an investment firm or something. I, I'll tell you, I, I, I've yet to stand at the bedside of a dying person and have her tell me that she wanted more of anything at that moment except time. I have met wealthy people who are happy, but I've never met a single person whose wealth made them happy. To the contrary, I've seen lives wasted, families destroyed, and communities undone by greed. Fundamentalists are always telling us that they know the true identity of the whore of Babylon in Revelation. I have an answer. I think it's greed. Greed is what turns nations into empires. Greed is what destroys our environment. Greed is what undoes democracy. Greed is the enemy of every good thing. The Ten Little Commandments, not so little. I wish it was all, of course, as simple as some people would have us believe that if these were just more widely available, posted, our moral and ethical situation would improve. But the only problem is, and you know this, knowledge really is not redemptive. When you tell someone to stop smoking because it may kill her, she says, I know. When you counsel someone to stop the affair because it will destroy everything he values, he says, I know. When you tell someone the dangers of her addiction to drugs and alcohol and why this is not going to end well, she always says, I know. Well, then obviously, knowing is not enough. The best thing we can do is live the commandments because in the end, the moral life cannot be commanded. The real law must be written on our hearts and the real evidence for it must be made manifest in the lives of people who are loving and who are trustworthy. It's not like this thing about this law that was just passed about in God we trust must be posted in every school in Oklahoma. Really? I mean, I have to admit, I'm not proud of this, but I, I, my first thought was, well, I guess if you're not going to give them any money, you can at least give them the motto that's on the money. <laughs> what we really need, what we really need is no more stupid symbolic laws flowing out of the state house. What we really need is the kind of schools that prove that we trust God by making manifest the love of God in a way that's so obvious that no idolatrous national motto is necessary. 
the people who push the saving power of the Ten Commandments are consistently the ones most indicted by them. Perhaps the zeal to display them correlates with our guilt for failing to follow them. Perhaps we could study more, all of us together, posture less, and just work to be loving and trustworthy human beings. Because I don't think God is out to get us for breach of contract. Number six, check. I think God is something else. I think God is the siren song of covenant. So let's sign on that dotted line in our hearts. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.